Hola familia, I'm your host Demian Servin Hernandez, and I am thrilled to welcome you back to Ship Out Loud, a podcast where we amplify the voices of Hispanics in STEM. We've got a special episode for you today as we continue our 50 Stories for 50 Year series. It's our fourth series episode, and we'll be diving into a fascinating conversation with Maya Morales Garcia, the Chief Program Officer at Beyond 100K, an organization dedicated to ending the STEM teacher shortage in the United States. Maya is in the C-suite of Beyond 100K, an organization with a similar mission to SHIP. She works every day to bring more educators to STEM while ensuring they represent and connect with the communities they work in. She comes from a family of community organizers, and like many of us, credits NASA for launching her career. But Maya took a bit of a more controversial trajectory, at least according to her parents. She went into education. She is passionate about the power of teaching and its ability to change lives. This was such an enlightening conversation for me, and I hope for you too. Now, let's listen to Maya Morales Garcia speak out loud. Thank you so much for joining us to do this interview for the Ship Out Loud podcast. Really appreciate you making the time and reaching out to us because uh, we appreciate when people have a story to tell and want to tell that story. I know that sometimes we uh, experience things, uh, difficulties, or a journey that might be challenging, and it can be difficult to talk about those things, but um, it seems like you appreciate the fact that by telling those stories, you're able to help out others who might be going through the same thing, uh, might experience the same challenges either in the past or in the future. Mm-hmm. Hopefully your story can inspire them to be able to get to where they want to be or, you know, just sharing that experience with you. So to get started, can you do a quick introduction of yourself, like where you currently work and what your role is there? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'd love to say hello. Uh, my name is Maya Morales Garcia. I am the Chief Program Officer at Beyond 100K, um, which is an organization um, dedicated to ending the STEM teacher shortage in the United States. I'm currently situated in South Texas uh, with my with my parents and my family, which is generally uh, where we're from. Um, is is the close to the border almost? We rep Los Angeles as as our hometown as well. So. Awesome, great. So that sounds like a very interesting organization. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that organization and, and kind of what challenges it's facing and how you guys are tackling those? Yeah. So the organization was launched as 100K in 10 back in 2012 or 2012 with a mandate from President Obama at the time. And the focus of the organization was really on addressing and the teacher shortage in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. So really thinking about how do we work collectively as a network of organizations really trying to make this happen? How do we work smarter to increase the number of educators we have access to, bring more people into the profession, look at op- opportunities to kind of really think about even mid-career professionals who might want to shift away from a discrete STEM field and into the teaching profession. So really thinking about if we bring everybody's genius together in a room, we can really address this this long-standing issue in the U.S. Beyond 100K is focused on taking that goal that we knocked out of the park. So we were able to achieve that with our network of partners in the first 10 years. Beyond 100K is focused on recruiting and retaining 150,000 diverse and representative STEM educators, as well as the preparation of um, STEM educators in in this next kind of 10-year mark. So we're looking at 300,000 preparing, retaining, and recruiting into the profession and also ensuring that every young person in America has access to a STEM learning experience 
that really centers them, uh, centers belonging for them, where they feel like they can be their authentic selves in that environment, where their learning is culturally responsive and connected to their local community. That's that's extremely interesting. Um, And I appreciate that there's people like you out there, you know, aware of this challenge, tackling it and making sure that it's, it's, you know, being fought against because there, there is a huge lack of, of STEM instructors and teachers. And so um, the fact that you're out there um, trying to make change happen, I think is, is incredible. So thank you so much for that. Can you tell us a little bit about your personal story and how you got involved in the educational system and STEM, like where you were born and raised? What did you study in school, your career path? All the things, all the things, all the things. I was raised or born in Los Angeles and raised kind of um, by two phenomenal parents. Uh, one of them really focused on um, just community organizing, both in their in their day-to-day jobs, really kind of thinking about um, how can we activate our community to support better access to education for Latinos specifically or Chicanos in Los Angeles. Um, so I grew up in a household that was anchored in that. For Black and Latino students, just really making sure that we were always kind of trying to move towards the best. And so um, amidst that, (laughs) I will say my father worked for Los Angeles Unified School District as a gardener and a pest control. My mother was like an admin at the LA Times at the the time and then um, shifted over to volunteer at the school um, that we went to elementary school in as a librarian. And so she didn't have formal education. My father finished his two-year degree. Um, but they always kind of situated us around education is that key to kind of uh, move us forward. That being said, there are two career options available to me. <laughs> and that was uh, to be a doctor or to be a lawyer. Um, so if you're smart, there are two options that um, kind of translate into success. And that's kind of how I started my journey in STEM. I happened to be really good at math or perform really well in math. Um, in LA Unified. And so I got slotted into GATE and some honors programs that really situated me to do engineering, design, um, and science. And so my parents translated that into, she's going to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. And so my education pathway was really oriented around becoming uh, a doctor, a medical doctor. And so I kind of oriented around that. And so when I was in middle school, we shifted over to South Texas. My father back to his family home and I was around my cousin's. And still carried that with me, but in a rural environment versus in a very urban environment. And when I started middle school and high school, I carried that love of math and science with me into those experiences. And what was unique about South Texas is that my middle school science teachers were all Latina. They were all women. And they were all women who had gotten or sought out higher level degrees in their field. So people who had done research in ecology, had that experience to be able to make science real for me um, and really understand how can we use this tool to support our community writ large. And so I had really great mentors in the sciences uh, from middle school on forward who really kind of helped me see myself in this profession and really helped broaden the scope. As a result of that interaction, my chemistry teacher, who is named Miss Mr. Nath, he encouraged me to apply for an internship program called NASA Sharp Plus when I was in middle school. And so I was able to, for the first time, and having to go convince my parents, my teachers convinced my parents to let me go do this big thing where I'd be in New Mexico working for NASA on a university campus, 
for six to eight weeks in the summer. Um, and that experience was transformative for me um, to convince my family to let me go, first of all, but also it helped me see myself as an independent scientist and engineer um, and really kind of see how that that skill set that had been modeled for me got activated on a deeper level. So it allowed me to level up in community with other scholars, other teenagers from around the nation who were, who were doing this work, were diverse as well. And so kind of like, it was a little community, a little community. I want to say we all geeked out and, and nerded out for eight weeks in the summer, let us loose together in the University of New Mexico. But that's not a small thing to say that you worked for NASA and had an internship for NASA, especially coming from our community in South Texas. And so that translated into more success and also launched me into my schooling back east. And that's where I really experienced my first kind of stutter in academics is I'm on a pre-med track. I love science, but those those habits and the the rigor was not something I was prepared to uh, to do. And I almost bunked out my first year of college. Had it not been um, for a sun lamp to help with seasonal affective disorder in Massachusetts. Uh, so that sunny side, you know, got to get that um, in. But also like this community that ran along the East Coast, but also was embedded at my school. So I was part of an organization called La Unidad. It was a group of uh, Latinx who were around the, the country that were attending college at Mount Holyoke. And we all had this house that we would collect in. And I had a big sister who was a math major um, named Raquel Guerrera, and she was my mentor. And kind of helped me, guide me through the choices I would make about course taking, how to navigate with professors, all of those things that my parents weren't necessarily equipped to support me with sure. where I'm into. And so that body really is why I was successful in persisting in university. Um, I graduated with a degree in neuroscience and behavior. And I think in my final year, I realized that my passion inspired by my parents was really not to become a doctor. My passion was really to work with students and educators and be an educator myself. But teaching is not something that when you are smart and you are successful is something that's really thought about as a career pathway you should pursue, especially if you're in the science. No one who's speaking to students who are good at science is saying, you really might make a great teacher. You should think of that as a profession. Right. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so there's all that stigma. I um, shifted over from a career in science and pre-medicine over into a DC teaching fellows program. I taught in the District of Columbia for eight years and had a wonderful kind of track record as an educator in D.C. And then from there, I shifted into government leadership and I started leading at the D.C. Office of State Superintendent of Education. I was their STEM director and led all of our course implementation and retro, like our adoption of standards, all of that process, as well as the launch of our STEM ecosystem. And then continued that work when I shifted over to Denver in Colorado. And then now I'm leading at Beyond 100K. So that's the long story. I could sit for hours, clearly. Damn it. Get over <laughs> you. It's, talk it's about that, but that's the trajectory for, for me. So I do have a, um, you, you said some things that kind of piqued my interest. And the first one was, you said you had to convince your parents to go to this camp. What was their reaction? What did they tell you? And how did you convince them? My teachers convinced them to let me go. They considered it a strong investment. I think 
it helped that my father was in the military and that my mother, they, they, they valued education so much. And that was like a standing point. They knew it was important, but the why I needed to leave South Texas, why I couldn't just do a program at the local university and why I needed to do this and, and just kind of impressing upon them the opportunity. My teachers helped facilitate that conversation. I would not have been on a plane without them. And so not- I think it was a fear. Yeah. It was a fear of like the unknown. And also like, do you really need to do this? You're taking your eldest daughter away. You know, I was working at the time in my my father's store and like doing all those things. So to convince them to let me do this was, was like a huge deal because I I had such a big responsibility in the family at the time. Yeah. So I'm I'm also Hispanic. And I think maybe a lot of our Hispanic listeners might not even question the fact that our parents wouldn't we necessarily be super up for going, but we do have yeah. some listeners who aren't Hispanic. And so um, it's a big deal. It's a big deal for Hispanic parents to do the whole even summer camp that is even like in the same city or even organizations like YMCA after school. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, there's a certain stigma to it that I think has to be overcome. And it seems like you fought for that to be able to to do this amazing experience. And it seems like you had the backing of some great teachers. So it sounds like even from the beginning and early on, you had teachers that made a big impact in your life and kind of vouched for you and and helped you gain these opportunities. So I think that's that's great. And I think it speaks to why you eventually decided I want to do something in that field. Like when you look back on your life, you're like, oh, this seems obvious now, right? Like this is an obvious trajectory given everything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about is that you mentioned kind of the, I don't I don't know if I'd call it the stigma, but the teaching is not considered a prestigious career unless you're maybe like a college professor or something like that. But, you know, you even hear that, that I, mean, I hate this saying, they say that you, those who can't do teach. And, and I absolutely hate that because teachers are an incredible change in people's lives. Why do you think there is that stigma or or that type of point of view? Because I know everybody says, oh, we love teachers, we love teachers, but there is a certain kind of way that people look at teaching. And why do you think that exists? Well, we we know a lot about why that exists, actually. We know that it's it's considered and often talked about as women's work, caregiving work. And historically, anything that is like a caregiving type profession is really deprioritized. We see this with nursing too. Right. Like when we think about caregiving and that positionality of women's work in the world, um, teaching falls under that category. So that's part of it. It's a gender issue. And even we can even break that down to pay and how pay value is attributed to to the the culture of teaching. The other is that um, historically it was something that we pushed women into as a career choice and a career pathway was often where um, single women were professionals before they were married. And so histor- we have this whole historic legacy of it. That's not true, though, for communities of color. Teaching for prior to Brown versus Board of Education was a huge anchor in the community. We had people shifting to go get educated at HBCUs or uh, what now we would call HSIs and coming back to their communities with that knowledge and really investing in their local communities. And we saw that shift when a lot of teachers of color were fired after a Brown versus Board of Education and also a diminishing of that in the community. So I would say um, it's it's like a twofold issue, but this idea that we don't prioritize a profession because it's associated with caregiving, the major value 
that people associate with education is this is a place where my kids go so I can go to work sometimes, right? right? Like it's a babysitting, it's a caretaking. And that's not the actual nature of the profession. That's not the critical role that educators play. And so when you look at TikTok right now and you see all these teachers talking about the work that they're doing, a lot of that work, if we translate it into like the corporate field, they'd be working in HR making three times that money. When we see job posts for, I don't want to give any teachers any ideas who are looking at the podcast. When we look at a podcast, I was looking at Asana even, which is like, like an internal management software. They're looking for people yep. to develop in-house curriculum for them. That is a teaching skill that we professionalize and we dedicate our lives to. And so this idea of what's the best way to get someone to learn something, to take on new knowledge, that's a that's a real skill that we co-hone over time that's valuable across sectors. And it's just not paid um, well. And there are historical reasons for that that are both intentional as well as non-intentional that I've named some of them. And then we can get into a whole conversation about property taxes and the local funding of schools and how that translates into teacher pay as well. So there's all of these different mechanisms and institutionalized mechanisms that we need to question when we think about a profession that is undervalued and underpaid and that our parents won't tell us to do. We have teachers telling their children, don't become this. Yeah. And and I would argue it is the only profession that every student in America has a 12-year onboarding to. <laughs> so they get to see over the course of 12 years what's great about it and what might be really strong, like what teachers might really struggle with, which is more than they, I can say for any other profession out there. That's very, very true. I never thought about it that way. They have firsthand experience for 12 years of what it's like to be a teacher. So I do want to come, I want to circle back around to this a little bit later, but thank you so much for for that insight because I know there's a lot of historic uh, events and uh, laws that have I think, far-reaching consequences in regards to why teaching and education is the way it is in the United States today. So I am going to pick your brain a little bit more about that later. But before we do, um, since you come from a teaching background, how do you think that these educational systems can support students that are from underrepresented communities as they pursue a future in STEM? Oh my gosh, there's so many things we could be doing to transform our, our kids' experience or our students' experience in school. I think the number one thing every school district in America could do is to make sure that students, especially students of color, Latino students, Black students have access to elementary science education. So we know that writ large, most students, the first time they get science is in fifth grade when it's first tested in most school systems. And, and that is over-indexed in our most urban school districts or in school districts that um, we see majority uh, students of color in. And so the first time our students are developing their identity in science is not until late middle school often, unless they're doing out-of-school time programs, unless right. they're doing STEM enrichment that either their parents push them into or they're part of a community program, they're doing a boys and girls club, and that makes that infrastructure, that that support, like not support infrastructure, but that out-of-school time program, the camps, the after-school programs, that makes them even more essential and critical. I would argue that we need both, though. We need both the in-school experience as early as possible. And so making sure that happens in elementary school so that where students can see themselves in the profession in those critical identity stages. And then... We do need that after-school programming because that informal programming allows you to dream. 
in ways you don't normally have the, the ability to do during a school day. It allows me to innovate. I can go to a maker space and start to see myself as a creator and start to test things out in a different environment. And so we need both spaces to be valued. As students start to kind of move forward in their career, the other issue and the, the, the article that we recently published was about detracking and attending to how we push students into science course-taking pathways or math course-taking pathways. A student who is, 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 is not performing well in math is going to be pushed into math remediation in middle school and high school. And that actively puts them and situates them in a very different track or opportunity taking for science. And we know that historically. So if I don't do well in Algebra 1, I'm not going to have access to honors biology or AP biology, even if I'm really interested in it or very good at it because of the master scheduling. So at the secondary level, we really need to attune to the, the, the messaging students are hearing about their abilities in, these, in, the, in science and math, their identities in science and math, and the courses that they have access to, which is something I think administrators, educators, and everyone struggle with is how do we offer the most opportunities for students to kind of really select and opt in to things they're really excited about? And still, how do I staff that? How do I pay for that? Um, and make sure that they have access to it. But also, how do I make sure that in seven periods of day, this makes sense for a kid too? So they can they can graduate on time. They can do all of these things. So our administrators are under immense pressure. Our school systems are under immense pressure. But at the same time, we don't have this kind of choice-based pathway for kids. It's it's The result is that students don't have a clear, clear pathways, which was with which they can um, continue to investigate and and like have that really broad educational experience that would allow them to kind of discover and test out what they might be interested in doing later on in life. At the high school level and middle school level, that's what we need to see. And then what we also need to do is do a stronger bridge between high school and, and college. And so the right. mentoring and the, the culture of care that we hope to see in elementary carried up into middle school, all of that. But we need to embed that at the college level too. And so we see more and more schools starting collaboratories or mentorship communities for students like I had. But we also need to shift that over to the mindset of our professors, those that are teaching both inter-level as well as upper-level courses in STEM disciplines. So we're starting to see that transform a little bit, but not nearly fast enough when your professor is focused on, on both publishing and their grants, as well as whether or not students are reading their courses well. It's hard to think about like supporting the pedagogy at the undergraduate level that then allows someone to kind of really learn when maybe that's not what you're being measured against as a faculty member. And so like there are all of these pressures that orient uh, our entire pathway in a, in a direction of accountability that doesn't serve the student taking the courses and we need to kind of shift that mindset. And I think if we do that and focus on the kids and the outcomes related to them and their wonderful learning experiences, then we'll see a transformation. That's very interesting. And I appreciate you talking about kind of the structure of the current education system and the struggles that it faces right now and kind of some ways that that could be adjusted. How was your experience? I think you kind of like talked about your journey and like an overview, but how was your experience within that system? Is that when you started seeing some of the flaws that it had or 
did you have somebody that kind of talked to you about it while you were in it? Like maybe some of your teachers talked about their struggles? I do think I was lucky because I had the disposition as well as the support system around me to kind of push me. So I had parents who were really saying, where's the A, even though I don't know what that means in, in calculus, I still want to see it. And then I had teachers who were invested in me, saw something in me who who gave me that time and energy. And not every kid has access to that. Not every student has access to that type of infrastructure or the, the type of dynamic. And I think that we leave a lot up to students' own ability, um, their own inclination to pursue something. And then we also devalue if if students who don't have my framing or disposition, meaning like if I don't, if some of our smartest kids are RC students. Some of the best conversations I had as a teacher with all my students who didn't see value in doing the textbook work, but wanted to tinker in a corner. And we devalue that type of intelligence in a formal education system. And that's why some of the students see belonging when they go to an after-school program or camp. That's where they experience that joy or at home with their family. But we don't recognize that genius in a formal environment or that aptitude in a formal environment. And, and we need to get better at that because it's really turning kids off to, to school. It, it helps them. It, 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 they see school as like a place that confines them or constrains them versus a place that opens up doors for them. And so that, that is a number of different things. So I saw that as an educator. I saw that as a coach of educators. And I saw that as a student myself, where I, I saw kids who were just as brilliant as me, but maybe not doing it in the same way. And their work was devalued over mine. Their ideas were devalued over mine. You keep seeing those messages over and over again. You get the message, this isn't important to me. What's important to you is that I memorize the periodic table. But why do I need to do that? What do I need to, you know? And so like, I don't place value on that. And so as educators, we're starting to learn a little bit more with phenomena-based teaching and like in science and, and kind of thinking about what is important to students, what's relevant for them to learn and how are we embedding student interest and identity as we design instructional instruction. But the, the field overarchingly is not shifting in that direction quickly enough to do that. Yeah, but one of the things that you mentioned and it kind of, reminded me of this is that phrase that if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will live its whole life thinking that it's dumb. And that kind of seems kind of the point that you're making is that a lot of times we have one way of measuring success academically, whereas that's definitely not conducive to different types of learning and successes. So I want to shift over because we kind of talked about your journey, where you're at now, the current state of education, and I kind of want to shift to the future. Because that kind of seems like where your organization is focused, where a lot of people, I think most people would agree the education system has lots of room to grow, right? It has a lot of problems. <laughs> and so I think one of the things that I've noticed, I used to work for, uh, I used to do marketing for a school that was a charter school that would help underrepresented students and kids mm -hmm. were uh at risk of failing or at risk of dropping out. Mm -hmm. And one of the major identifiers for those types of children and, you know, teenagers was that their home life wasn't necessarily the best. Yeah. Right. So is there a place for the education system to be able to assist with that aspect of it? So when I worked in D.C., 
at the state office, we had um, we had a couple of different programs to support students. And um, and I know organizations across the nation are focused on kind of how do we support for wraparound services? So we have at the younger levels, we see um, a lot of success with this uh, community schools model where we have, um, and I don't know if this is the charter orientation that you worked at, like in the organization that they had a community schools orientation where you had the doctor's office in the building. We have social workers. We have, so it, it really is, the school becomes this this catalyst and this anchor. And I think it served this role even in COVID of like being a one-stop shop where the community interfaces that, so you didn't have to leave the building. You could get this all done in inside. And having those access to those wraparound supports really does help. And um, when I can get seen by a dentist, make sure my eyes are checked, all of these things that, can be barriers externally. Think about the time. When I think about the time it takes me to navigate insurance myself, right? Having someone do that, that's, it takes a day for anyone to kind of navigate the nuance of how to get a, a, a prescription paid for. And so having that ability to do that and having people who know how to do that, who can advocate for you is really important. And so we see community schools really stepping up to show us models of how that can work. We also see organizations like Jose Andres's organization um, where he's kind of got DC Central Kitchen in the district. And we have this model of where people who who are kind of coming back to schooling may have uh, left for any given reason, but maybe they're 16, 17, 18 years old coming back to kind of finish the high school diploma and alternative certification and all of those different things. Um, this partnership allows, you know, I'm taking my coursework, but also I'm training up on a profession, on a career pathway. And I'm starting with maybe working in a food kitchen where I'm feeding the homeless, but also I'm learning the skills that I can then leverage into a formal environment and to take on a sous chef role or something like that or explore another aspect of the restaurant business. So on another level, we see these partnerships that are kind of thinking about job training and skill development and orienting around where is this person at in their life um, and how can we offer the services that are going to be really meaningful? But overall, I think across the U.S., we see this need for mental health support. And, and that is like something that no one has figured out how to do well in a holistic way for students and youth across the nation. And, and it's something we need to tackle, especially as we look at the numbers after COVID of educators' mental health, of students' mental health, of our mental health, of you and me. Even on this call, like how are people grappling with that? And and also the challenges that are starting to emerge as people are more and more impacted by climate or severe weather and climate associated events. And so those are things our communities are going to need to develop better supports for. And we saw a little bit of that in COVID about how we work well and how we don't work well um, to support, especially those who need, the, those dots aren't getting connected by anybody. In the, in the field, right? So our unhomed students or unhoused students where we're thinking about where am I going to sleep tonight even, right? How do we get, get those services in place? So community schools are one model, but we need better ideas and better solutions out there. Yeah, it kind of sounds um, like the old adage of it takes a village <laughs> to to raise a kid. And you, you've, you've been stressing the importance of school as a community, I think. Not necessarily that it's a community school, but the fact that school is a huge part of a community, right? And that 
there's a lot of challenges, I think, and a lot of unseen challenges that may hinder the student's ability to learn and succeed in school from, you know, a lot of things outside of school, um, the way that they're being taught, the way that their success is being measured. And, and I know that there's a lot that possibly needs to be changed to be able to achieve success for students. So just what would your ideal education STEM ecosystem look like? The dream? What's the, the dream. dream? What's the dream? Look at that. What's the dream? Well, first, I think we need equitable funding systems in order to support. I think what the dream is that local communities and communities overarchingly are are talking to parents and community members about the best way to set up structures and supports to to meet the needs of the students, the existing students, right? I think when we we don't have um, strong mechanisms for authentic community voice, and especially uh, where our parents don't feel empowered to really be those decision makers, or maybe a small few parents feel empowered to be those decision makers, and we don't really get that authentic engagement um, in in what a school or schooling should look like. The other is that um, we do need services to work for for everybody and so like when our social services like medical and others aren't aren't strong or those systems are not strong then the other systems is like an ecosystem right then you see an imbalance in that we see uh the manifestation of that imbalance in the school a teacher sees that on the day-to-day so when a student doesn't have access to something externally food dental care like our basic things then we have to as we see that indicator in our classrooms. And 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 that um, means that the teacher now becomes a problem solver that has to manage around that, address it, notify, and that becomes in addition to uh, their normal work. And, and that's not a hard thing to do when the systems are all balanced out, but when there is an imbalance and you're the one person who's seeing that and having to manage that, it becomes a reason um, that weighs on people. And that's why we see people leaving the profession. One of the reasons why is because I'm holding that burden. I'm holding all of that. And it's hard to manage all of those decisions on a day-to-day basis, in addition to everything else I'm being held accountable for. So um, I think I would like to see balance <laughs> in the system. And I think that comes from really centering those decisions and those systems around what is best for students, our community, and our teachers. And I don't know that, that that's the orientation we have right now for the design of these systems. Yeah. Um, so that, that's what I'll say there. Um, an ideal world, I, I think kids would have access to clean, light, bright, joyful learning experiences that fostered their awe and curiosity. That students, I wouldn't have to be advocating for access to science, music, art, and education for elementary students, it would be uh, uh, something that was already a non-factor. And we would be right. talking instead about how do we make sure that the pedagogy or like the way we do instruction is exciting, engaging, um, but also effective, right? And so we're stuck talking about baselines and foundational things when we should be spending our time and energy talking about the meteor issues and, and the nuances of the work. So that's 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 my dream. I want to get out of the foundations and make sure those are strong and move into. And I think what we do at Beyond 100K, if I could, just 
navigate that is we have this map of the grand challenges where we think about all the different things that educators are naming across the nation as the top things that are that are keeping us from retaining, recruiting, and preparing educators, or maybe not keeping, but we're thinking about the largest barrier, the largest challenges to being successful in this goal. And we know that prestige of the profession is one of those, teacher pay is one of those, but also um, we, we talk about high school course pathways. Some of the things I mentioned today are elevated on those grand challenges and in that document in ways that over a thousand people contributed to. And, and so I, I think because we have that clarity, we can orient our network around those, the media's challenges, which we call our keystones, and we can push the power and energy of our network, which start to address those one by one. And our hope and what we've noticed is that when we focus our energy and attention as a collective across some of these really essential challenges, we create a groundswell of energy and a ripple that influences the others as well. Wow. Well, thank you so much for that insight, Maya. Uh, I, I am a huge proponent of education as a life-changing tool, especially for underrepresented communities and students. I personally had an experience where teachers were basically like second parents to me and they really shaped my path in life. And so I really do value and appreciate teachers. And I I do get really emotional about teachers and their struggles because I know that it's a very, sadly, it's a very thankless job um, despite the amount of impact that they have on students' lives. That's such a pivotal role uh, and moment in their in their development because it's at, especially I think high school when you're a teenager, you're really figuring out who you are, what you're going to do, the things you're going to pursue in the rest of your life. And so the fact that teachers are there able to kind of, you know, help them out during that tumultuous time is extremely important. So I could sit here and talk to you and ask you more questions about education for like two hours. I would love to. I would love to, you know, have you here on the podcast again. But I did have one last question for you. And that's if someone else um, listening to this sees and agrees with these points that education um, needs help, needs support, needs people who are willing to give up their time and, and, and enact change, how would they go about doing that? How, how would they get in touch with either your organization or, or any other way of helping? Yeah, I think if, if folks have interest in connecting with Beyond 100K, learning more about our mission, learning about the way we approach that work, at, or even just kind of navigating the Grand Challenges map, which is a great resource everyone has access to on our website. I think that's a great, like that they can reach out to us and we would love to set up time to chat, right? Or come to present it or something like that, whatever would make the most sense. Because I think it's a great tool to to navigate local conversations and really um, just think about like, what's really resonating with me? What what might I have power to shift or take action on as a, as a person in my community, as a parent, as a, as a student at a college, um, all of those different things. So thinking about where you sit in the ecosystem, you all have a voice. And so I think connect with us if you want to learn more. But my second point is we have the power to elevate our voices in community or as individuals to advocate for some of these shifts and changes. And the more we talk about what our kids need, what our communities need to be successful, um, starting with elementary science for every kid in America. If I can get everyone listening to this podcast to ask a question about their local elementary school, 
or or voice that about tell their story of their own experience in elementary. I, I think it starts with telling our stories, but it also starts with advocating for what baselines should be in existence. So I would ask for people to advocate for our community, our family, like our families. And the next is creating space to to vis and visibility. So we need more mentors. We need more people from our community saying there's no one right way to land here, to land in engineering, to land in science. Here's my story. Again, sharing your story with other people, but showing up, showing up and teaching, co-teaching with an educator in your local community, showing up as a volunteer or as a mentor. Go judge a science fair project. Immense joy comes from judging elementary science projects. You will see some crazy stuff, but show up in some way and make yourself visible to other kids because you never know what is going to inspire a kid to say, oh my gosh, I belong. Or this one question that this person asked me helped like stayed with me and it really impacted me. And so I said, hey, make ourselves visible, be out there in your community, get involved as a volunteer, as a coach, as a mentor, and as an advocate on some level is, is what my call to action would be for all of us. Well, thank you so much. Um, we're definitely going to have Beyond 100K's uh, information on the description for this podcast. So if you're interested in getting involved, please check out the description, uh, click, visit them, learn, get involved in your community. We know that there's a lot of work to be done and there isn't one person, I think, that's going to be able to make all this change happen. It's going to be a group effort, a community effort. And one of the things that I want to really stress is the fact that Although there's many communities that think, well, I'm out, I'm out of school. I don't have anything to do with elementary. I'm done with high school. But the fact that we get involved with our community schools really affects the future of that community as a whole, because then the community succeeds, the amount of people that are willing to uh, make change happen grows. Um, their success is our success. And so thank you so much, Maya, for the work that you're doing. We really appreciate it. And uh, it's really necessary. And the fact that you're out there um, making this uh, change happen and getting others involved, uh, I think is incredible. And so thank you so much. And thank you so much for being here with us. Once again, I really I really do want to have you here for another episode because I love education and, and uh, you're extremely knowledgeable. I think you're probably the most knowledgeable person about education that <laughs> I've ever talked with. And so I want to pick it up. They nerd out too much. <laughs> I know. No, no, I love, I love that because it's like, uh, we can, like, we, uh, the the whole conversation about education and the problems that it has and what the solution is, it's yeah. not an hour-long conversation. This is like a conversation that's been happening since like, I think most people started identifying some sort of issues when segregation, the Brown versus the Board of Education happened. Like, right. I think a lot of people aren't aware of like the, the vast effects that had uh, throughout the education system. Yes, I mean... We didn't, we can, we can go down a road and, and probably invite others to think about, um, one of the reasons why teachers of color don't join is because they see also we hear, and this would be a good host to have or a good session to lead is like, what is the harm we do to ourselves and our community by conforming to a system that doesn't connect with our cultural background? And we, and the biggest piece we have of that is boarding schools, the Native American boarding schools. And, and and that's like a deep and traumatic experience and topic. And those are places, honestly, we, we need to talk about more and elevate those. And, and so um, those experiences so we can get to a place where we decide 
you know, we, we have to learn from our past as a community, but also we need to remind ourselves that we have had people in the struggle and fighting all along. And, and we are part of a legacy of that and that we need to continue to raise our voice. And you know that as well as I do. Um, and so that's the case. I did want to give a shout out to Shane, though, if I could. Because yeah, um, I would say that the DC chapter was instrumental in kind of coming to the table and volunteering for DC youth. And so like, that that team, that that community, that chapter, that organization, they showed up as leaders in our STEM ecosystem in DC in ways that I wasn't even anticipating. And and I just want to shout them out because when I was uh, leading STEM in DC and we were looking for representation and support and and kind of just that connection, they answered the call and they showed up and really supported a number of our schools uh, in in a lot of ways. And so I just want to say that um, when I got the invite to do this podcast I was like heck yeah like of course I want to do that like because it's such a special organization and also just like the the charge and the mission are so important um and and I saw that in effect in real time um in DC so well thank you so much Maya we really appreciate you and hopefully we can collaborate more um together I promise we're gonna call you again because no worries I want (laughs) to I want to geek out with you about education so thank you once again and uh See you next time. All right. Take care. Maya, it was truly an honor to learn from you. Thank you for sharing your personal journey and giving us a glimpse into your very important professional endeavors. Our SHIP members have all been touched and influenced by STEM educators. We're so happy people like you are working so hard to support them. During our conversation, Maya shared a poignant anecdote that resonated deeply. Her commitment to STEM education and connecting with communities shines through every word. Our paths will undoubtedly cross again soon, and we look forward to continuing this inspiring dialogue. Now, Familia, as a reminder, if you ever miss one of our 50 Stories for 50 Years episodes, we're archiving them all on the website at ship.org forward slash 50 stories. The link will be here in the description, so go check it out. Also, if you're looking to meet up with some of these featured leaders in person, definitely consider joining us at one of the 2024 Regional Leadership Development Conferences, or as we like to call them, RLDCs. These regional events meet our members where they're at, literally. We bring national knowledge and expertise to accessible local conferences. This year, we're going to be in California, Indiana, Texas, and Florida. Learn more at ship.org forward slash engage and register today. You can always learn more about SHIP on our website at ship.org or on our social media platforms listed below. To become a member today, click here and use code POD22 for 10% off. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast so that wherever you listen, you get your weekly ship stories throughout the year, as well as the ship YouTube channel, where some select interviews will be posted for you to watch, not just listen. And remember, you belong here and at every level of the STEM industry. Cuídate, familia.